I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we'll be exploring leadership in the public gaze. We'll be interviewing someone who's held some of the most demanding and high-profile leadership roles in the UK. Tony Hall, Lord Hall, Baron Hall of Birkenhead. Tony started as a journalist and became head of news at the BBC. He went on to become CEO of the Royal Opera House and was appointed to the House of Lords in 2010. Three years later, when the Beeb was deeply immersed in crisis, he was brought back to the BBC to become Director General. Alongside his other roles, he's been Deputy Chair of Channel 4, on the board of the London Olympics and has led various government initiatives. Having led the BBC through several more crises, Tony retired last year to become chair of the National Gallery. Now, shortly after we interviewed Tony for this podcast, he was once again immersed in a crisis involving the BBC, this time involving decisions made at the BBC more than 25 years ago. That controversy prompted him to resign his position at the National Gallery. We're not going to cover that today with Tony, but Tony's clearly experienced some extraordinary highs and lows throughout his long career in some very demanding high-profile roles. We want to find out what leaders of professional organisations can learn from Tony's extraordinary experiences. You know, David, there's some interesting parallels between running the BBC and running a professional service firm. They're both complex organisations full of highly educated, highly motivated, highly opinionated, highly articulate people competing for the same basic resources and believing passionately in the work they do. They generally want to be left alone to do whatever they think is right. And basically, they just want the person in charge to make sure the bills get paid and stay out of their way. Yeah, it does sound like there's a lot of similarities between that and running a big law firm, as I did at A&O. But I think it's not just about creating an environment where your colleagues can do their best work, although obviously that's an essential part of your role. As leader, you're also responsible for the reputation of the organisation. That's really a key responsibility, I think. Making sure your firm is getting in the news for all the right reasons and none of the wrong reasons. You can't always control that, but that should be your, your goal. And when something does go wrong, I think you just have to accept as leader that sometimes you may have to fall on your sword if that's what's required. You know, at the BBC, you need to manage this complex network of stakeholders, not just the different factions within the organisation, but outside too. You need to be able to withstand the criticism and attacks from politicians, journalists and the public. And you know, Tony received serious death threats when he sacked Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear. And for a while, he was placed under police protection. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I think it's very hard for people who, if you haven't done a role like that to really understand the pressures so uh, the question i think we're asking is how did tony rise to the top and how did he learn to lead these significant organizations very much in the public eye how did he do it and given the relentless pressure that these roles always attract why did he do it Good morning, Tony. It's absolutely fantastic to have you with us today. It's great to be with you. You've spent most of your career at the BBC, but you've also had two very high-profile jobs, at least two, outside the BBC. So in your experience, you know, thinking about leadership of an organisation where you've been an insider compared to leadership where you came in from the outside, 
What's different about those two situations? Well, strangely, in the leadership roles I've done, I've always been an outsider. People kind of assumed that when I went back to the BBC during the Savile crisis, that somehow, well, you're really an insider. You know how the place works and all that sort of stuff. You know, you can pull the levers in the signal box. And um, strangely, I felt like a real outsider, like an alien, but one that knew the culture, knew what the place was about, knew what it should be about. That was the advantage. But the place was very, very different to the place that I'd left well over a decade before. And that, by the way, is inevitable. So I suppose I had the advantages. I was lucky in that sense, going back to the BBC. I had advantages of, of knowing how the place would operate from all the time that I'd spent there. But also the advantage of seeing it as an outsider sees it. And I think one of the things that you've got to do when you're leading anything is to both see it as outsiders see it and keep that perspective, which means talking to a lot of people about how they think the organization is, but also to see it from the inside too. And I was, I was very struck when I went to the Royal Opera House, which was had been through five chief executives in about four years, and being met there by a guy who I sadly went to his funeral last week and said, uh, said to me, hello, boss, in the way that People talk to you when they know they know a damn sight more than than you do. But when I went round the place and I spent the first two days just trying to go around the place and meeting everyone, shaking loads and loads of hands, you also kind of realise that it's a kind of Shakespearean thing. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the, the sort of high politics of the organisation and very public. But there are an awful lot of people who are just trying to do a good job and want to do a good job and want a sense of belief and confidence in uh, in what they're doing. And and actually, I found that interesting enough when I went back to the BBC the second time around as well. So when you started as an outsider, what, how did you kind of insert yourself into that conversation of the high politics, if you like? I mean, how did you get on top of that? Well, what I did when I went to the Royal Opera House, and also when I went back to the BBC, I made sure I had three months before I actually, uh, in the BBC sense, rejoined and, and the Opera House joined. And in that time, I went and talked to lots and lots of people, both internally and externally. And the internal conversations were fascinating because if you sit down and kind of, you know, make notes on all the things that I've done, but if you just sit down and chat to people, and when you get beyond about 45 minutes, you begin to get into some really interesting areas. You know, if you allow an hour and a half, for example, and you, you, you get into some really interesting areas when people start to loosen up and they get to know you and trust you and can talk about really what's going on. And I find those conversations invaluable. So I would sit there with my notebook. At the end of the day, I'd then kind of reflect on what I learned. And then at the end of each week, you'd come to some summation. So before I went back, and I had, a, by the way, a very good mentor, so it meant that by the time you came to day one, you had a sense of what the place was like. You had a good sense of where people lay in that. And uh, I think that groundwork was phenomenally important. And when I've talked to people, friends who, or people I've been kind of um, lucky enough to mentor about starting new jobs, I've always said, you know, take your time and talk to people. You have one moment in your career leading something when actually you can spend whatever time you want finding out what you want. After that, whoa, the diary takes over. You know, the cogs and all those wheels start whirring. And the problem then is how you get off that and give yourself space. But that's a different issue. So looking across everything that you've done, I mean, coming up through the news and current affairs in the BBC, moving to uh, the Royal Opera House, the work you did at Channel 4, the work you did with the Olympics, the Cultural Olympics, back at the BBC into a more uh, executive capacity than now at the National Gallery and, and everything else in between. 
I'm interested in what kind of consistent beliefs and behaviours have really defined your approach to leadership. You've led so many different kinds of people and different kinds of institution. What's the common thread throughout all that? I believe you've got to believe in the organisation that you're going to work for and you're going to lead. And I've been lucky enough to be in a number of organisations where I've really believed in what they have done. You know, at the Opera House, we were there to produce world-class opera and ballet. And I used to make a point of starting every conversation, you know, start with the art. That's why we're here. Not, we have an HR problem here. Or, by the way, we've got a budget issue over here. Start with every conversation, with why are we here. Really interesting. At the National Gallery, we start every board meeting in the conservation studios, looking at paintings that are going to be restored, or paintings that have been restored, or paintings that we have been lucky enough to purchase. You start with the art. And I think it's a fantastic reminder of why you're there. And you can see all sorts of boards where that's not how you start. You start on things often, especially in creative industries, you start on things you can measure, the data. Actually, you've got to start with why you're there. And it was the same with the BBC and with programming. You know, the BBC is there to produce fantastic programs. Start off with that. Are we doing that? How do we do that? How can we do that better? Are others doing better than us on certain areas? You've got to start with why you're there. And I think that's so important. So I think that sort of sense about how you change, how you adapt to the audience's demands, et cetera, et cetera. That's where you've got to start. I think the second thing, which I kind of really profoundly believe, is our teams. <laughs> in the, the first days of the BBC as a trainee in a strange little studio, two floors down, I think it was, maybe it's one floor down, in Broadcasting House, where you could hear the rumble of the Bakerloo line as trains went past. So not a great recording studio, but nonetheless, it's where we were playing. We were trained by a, um, a wonderful man who'd um, come from uh, Austria, and this is in the early 70s, and wore a black roll-neck pullover, which was quite 60s, but never mind, you know, there he was. He spoke with a very Germanic accent. And he said, remember, you are all at the top of this. Everyone wants to work to you, so you must treat people properly. Buy them teas, buy them coffees, whatever. Treat people properly and say thank you. And it's always struck me that when you're in broadcasting, particularly, you know, you're depending on loads of people. I mean, now, 50 years on, 40 years on, slightly fewer numbers of people, but loads of people all doing their jobs properly to make you a success. And so I believe in teams. I also think having, you know, led teams as a program maker, seeing how people with different perspectives in those teams is really, really, it's why, you know, for me, diversity is just a no-brainer. You want lots of people who are going to challenge you, lots of people who are going to come up with ideas that you didn't have, who knows things that you don't have, Teams are really, really important. And I suppose the other thing which I increasingly over the last 20 years I've kind of wanted to major on too is another generation. And one of the things which I set up at the BBC, which I was really pleased about, was a, a next generation committee who actually were elected. I mean, they all put their names forward, two or 300 people of them, to come down to 12 people who would be a mirror of the executive team and would challenge us from the perspective of people who were under 30. I love that. And because also... Not only did you get the right challenge from them, but you also spotted people who you think, do you know what? They can do stuff soon. It's also, by the way, why I believe a lot in apprenticeships. You've got to look to succession. You've got to look to the next generation, give them the chances that bluntly I had. Can I just pick up on something? When you were talking about start with the art, which I thought was a brilliant catchphrase, I was thinking from the point of view of a professional service firm, I guess it's start with the client. But the leaders of professional firms have typically come up through the ranks and they've run, you know, had major client relationships, etc. And they stay in close touch with the clients. When you're moving into something like the Royal Opera House or the National Gallery, you yourself have never been an opera singer or a musician. 
or a ballet dancer or a curator of fine art, does it mean that the experts, the specialists, can use their expertise in a way as a kind of power play against you? Because they're obviously more immersed in the art than you are. How do you make that work? It's such a good question. And no, I, I was never a ballet dancer. I was always there in the wings in case something went wrong, but no one ever picked me out. I have never had a problem with having people around me who know more about things than I do. My role was at the Opera House was to take the people who are the creative leaders, work closely with them to make their dreams happen. That's the role. You know, you want to enable a great creativity to take place. To be honest with you, back at the BBC, I felt that was my role too, which is, you know, I don't want to get in the way of creative ideas. I want to encourage and give people the confidence to make the very best creative judgments they can. Now, occasionally at the Opera House or at the BBC, you had to say, hey, listen, guys, we haven't got the money for that or whatever. But in the end, I think supporting, nurturing, enabling creativity in a creative organisation is what your job is. So in that context, Tony, all the jobs that you've held have involved dealing with multiple stakeholders, very, very different perspectives from uh, ballerinas to broadcasters, prima donnas to power brokers and politicians, all of whom have had high expectations of you in, in your capacity as leader, having imposed conflicting pressures on you. How do you deal with all that pressure? How do you deal with that complexity of all these different conflicted interests? First of all, you've got to listen and you've got to take people seriously. And, you know, your tone must be one of listening to the criticisms that people have or the suggestions that people have. And to keep telling yourself that, you know, when it comes to something like the BBC or comes to something like the Royal Opera House or comes to something like Channel 4, whatever it happens to be, People believe in these organisations and therefore hold them to very high standards for the most part. Now, it's not always the case. And you've got to work through in your own mind where people are criticising and make comments because actually they kind of want the end of it or they want the organisations to be, particularly with the BBC, to be curtailed versus those people who are thinking, we actually believe in you, we want higher standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you've got to sort that out. So you've got to listen. And in a way, you've got to speak many languages, by which I mean... How you talk to a, a select committee in the House of Commons, and I, I've done a lot of those, is very different to how you would talk to, for example, to some programme makers maybe, or the Royal Opera House to the dancers or the singers. And you've got to find a way of addressing what they're concerned about and what you're doing about those things in a way that makes sense to them. And so I, I think you've just got to keep listening and talking. I mean, one of the things I did at the Opera House, which I then took to the BBC was, the Opera House is quite easy. I made sure I got out of my office, you know, and I went and did all sorts of things, just meeting people, going down to listen to rehearsals or, or I sold programmes and managed to lose some money on that, but that's another thing. Uh, at the BBC, I said, okay, 20% of my time each week will be out. So on my first couple of weeks, the people of Radio Orkney said, a director general has never been to Orkney please come. Uh, we know you won't, but please come. I went three months later and it was great because actually you've got to keep listening to people, talking to people in lifts. I mean, it's, you know, all the things you've got to do. And it's really, really important to pick up what's on people's minds and give people the confidence to tell the truth to you. And that's hard, but you've got to win that trust, I think. And you come across as incredibly positive about that and sort of open to listening to what people are saying. Whereas a lot of leaders, I think, can often become quite cynical 
about the people they're dealing with and the difficulties they face. I think they just find themselves buckling under the pressure of people being relentlessly critical. So how on earth do you stay so positive, Tony? I think it's your job to be positive and it's your job to take these things on the chin and then move on. And I also think it goes back to start with the art. You've just got to keep reminding yourself why you're there. And you know, leading big public organisations is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. But you've got to remind people why you're there. And for me, it was easy at the Royal Opera House because if I got pissed off with something, I'd just go downstairs and watch a rehearsal and chat to the people who did it. And then you say, ah, that's why I'm here. Go back and you do all the stuff. The BBC, I go back. It really was getting out there and meeting the programme makers. I mean, I was arrested by AC12 on the set of Line of Duty. I loved it. Meeting the team there, meeting Jed Mercuro, who's an extraordinary genius of a writer. It just fires you up and you say, do you know what? Whatever else is going on, we're here to give these people the chance to do great work and the audiences the chance to have great things brought to them. Because I kind of profoundly believe that everybody, whoever they are, however rich, poor, wherever they live, whatever background they come from, everybody should have access to the very best, uh, the very best broadcasting, the very best opera, the very best ballet, the very best art. This is something which is fundamental, I think, for everybody. I'm just wondering, how do you deal with periods of self-doubt? How do you deal with a situation where it's not clear what's best? Oh, and the notion that you don't have periods of self-doubt is a nonsense. Of course you do. And I think that comes down to two things. I think one is that you have people around you who can be honest and people around you as a team who can give you perspective on whatever you're worried about. But in the end, you know, the buck stops with you. And the second thing is hinterland. You've got to have things that you can retreat into. In my case, I mean, thank God, the family is so important to me, my wife and all of that, you know, and, and opera and ballet and art, culture broadly, but also walking, getting out with friends. These things are important. The other thing is, this sounds a you know, maybe a bit naive, but it's amazing when you explain something that you're worried about to somebody, how the solution can often come from that, or it seems diminished. And I think the worst thing is to bottle these things up yourself. I think that's very hard, but this is not easy. And being in the middle of a, say, a bout of criticism is not easy at all. I was just remembering, Tony, actually the first time I met you and spoke to you, I had no idea who you were. You were just sitting opposite me on the train into London, but you had on your lap in front of you the score of an opera you were reading the libretto as you were listening to it on your headphones and I just thought oh that's interesting and unusual I'd like to have a chat with that gentleman but I mean everyone else was you know behind their financial times or or, or, or on their iPads or whatever and you were commuting into the office studying not just listening to but studying opera and I think it's an interesting example of what you say about hinterland I'm sure there were a hundred emails that you could have been reading instead and that's true. And I think just taking time out to work out, are you doing the things that really do give you a sense of, I mean, the trouble is we overuse the word well-being, but you know what I mean, that you think, ah, oh, that's why we're here. That's what we're here to do. I have this sort of sense of, am I reading the right things? Am I listening to the right bits of music? Am I, why aren't I doing, you know, I mean, and because there's so much in our lives, which are all far too short to enjoy, to understand. And I think it's really important you keep that and that kind of perspective on all these things. You know, things pass. It's partly my father, I have to say, who was always a, you can always do better, you know? Come on, yeah, don't rest on your laurels, you can always do better. So I've always got that awful sense, slightly driven sense, that I should be using my time profitably. So hinterland for me, really, really important. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, walking, talking with friends, talking with uh, my wife, my kids, 
things get into perspective. I mean, you come across as a genuinely decent person, but you must have needed to be ruthless on occasion. I don't understand how you've been able to rise to the top and lead so successfully in such relentlessly political environments. So for all the nice guys and gals out there who are wondering if they've really got the stomach to be a very successful leader. I think um, I think decency matters and it's really hard and decency in behaviours in organisations really matters. I mean, I came back to the BBC to sort out the mess left by the whole Savile saga and stories of bullying and harassment that went with it. And I think what I tried to do was to get to the point when the culture of the workplace was decent. You've got to keep working at that because I think knowing that your workplace, that you can do of your best, that the culture is going to be a decent culture, I think is important. And I remember, you know, early days in broadcasting, things that you just look back at and you think, God, that's, you know, how could people behave like that to one another? So I think decency is important. I think persistence is important that you can either run directly at something and, you know, whatever happens, you're just going to keep going. Or you can hit a bump and say, okay, let's just stand back. Now, where do we go? Okay, we'll go that way. Now we'll go forward again. So I think being very clear-minded about what you want to do is really, really important. One of the things that in my last few months at the BBC, I was most pleased with, because basically I had to lead the BBC through COVID and all the changes. And, and you know, like every, most other organisations, you know, suddenly you only have 8% of the people at work and the rest at home. And the revolution in the way that people worked was phenomenal. And we did actually in a month what would have taken five years and God knows how many consultants to do in a normal work plan. But a colleague and myself, a wonderful guy called Bob Shannon, who was a managing director of the BBC, and myself started off, uh, we better bring everyone together once a week and we'll have a kind of what became a radio phone-in. 12 o'clock every Wednesday, we did a phone-in and people could ring in with questions and whatever. And we got people to talk about what they were doing. We ended up, in fact, with an interview with one of the stars talking about what they were doing with COVID. And we ended up of a population of the BBC, I mean, full-time population, there were a lot of other people as well, 20,000. We were getting audiences of 14 to 15,000 people every Wednesday. And it brought the organisation together. And what was interesting about it was we dealt with all sorts of really difficult stuff in a very open way and dealt with criticism and as well as thanking people. And it made me think, gosh, you know, we can be so much more open in our communication with people than most of us who lead organisations think. We both used to love doing this kind of phone-in, and you never knew quite where they were going to go and what people would phone in with. There's an appetite out there for info. You know, I think it's important that's filled. Many people, I think, would look at the roles you've done. Many professional people, probably many people in the BBC and, and elsewhere, and look at the complex, challenging leadership roles that you've taken on and think, why would you do that? Why on earth would you put yourself in that position where you're under such criticism, under so much pressure, so many people to satisfy and, and keep happy? Why do you do it? Well, this is a podcast, but I had dark hair when I began and I've now got white hair. So I understand where the question is coming from. Um, because they're brilliant jobs and because the Royal Opera House matters, the BBC matters, the Olympics mattered in my small role in that. Channel Four. These are organisations that we should cherish in this country. They're an important part of what we are. So, 
So, yeah, I mean, the scrutiny you come under is intense. But these are jobs which are, you know, an immense privilege to do. And, you know, you take the downside and the downside is criticism. But on the other hand, I loved being head of the Royal Opera House. I really enjoyed my time at the BBC for the most part. And these are jobs that matter. So, you know, how lucky am I? As always... It's been lovely spending time with you and I really look forward to a chance when we can actually see each other again properly face to face. Thanks again for giving us your time. Thank you so much, Tony. My pleasure. So, David, what struck you as most interesting about that interview? Well, he wasn't really at all what I was expecting. He's really held some very big jobs, very much in the public eye. And there are some people that you come across who hold those kinds of positions that can have a rather grand manner, but that wasn't Tony at all, a very down-to-earth approach. Yeah, everything he said was about the people, not as groups of stakeholders, but as individuals. And the conversation he has with them, the time he spends listening to them. You hear a lot of leaders say that, and I think, yeah, right. But it came across as genuine with him. And he genuinely values these conversations with people. Yes, I agree. I I think it's very much Tony that he enjoys those conversations and draws a lot from them. As he was talking, I was. It, what came to mind was a quote I heard from Michael Collins, the Apollo 11 astronaut. He said, the flight to and from the moon is a long and very fragile daisy chain of events. Any one link in that chain breaks and everything downstream from that is useless. Well, Collins is talking about events, but I guess what you're saying is that Tony really understands how all the people in an organisation make up that daisy chain. Yes, absolutely. Everyone's job depends on everyone else. It's a real team effort to get things done. I thought it was really interesting in the full version of the interview before we edited it, all the way through, Tony was naming individuals he'd worked with, not to name drop, but to give them credit. He went out of his way to credit other people. Yeah, there are plenty of leaders who spend time so-called communicating with their staff, but it isn't really a proper exchange. They don't take the time to build the trust that's needed to be sure they're being told the truth by their people. I mean, Tony says it takes a 90-minute conversation to get people to really open up. Yes, I agree. I think, I mean, Tony comes across very much as someone who genuinely likes people, draws a lot from the conversations he has with people, and probably finds it pretty easy to trust people. I recognise that. I see a bit of that in myself. And you have to accept, I think, that occasionally, if you take that view, you will get burnt. But as a leader, you just can't spend all your time being suspicious of your colleagues. Well, some leaders do. Although I guess you can't really call people like that leaders. They're just people who've managed to get to the top of their organisations. I think it's important that you could trust your own instincts about the people you're working with, your colleagues. You really need to be able to sense who you can and who you can't trust. And, you know, look, from my own perspective, I'm not sure I could lead any other way. And 99% of the time when I look back over my own career, I think I was probably right. But there's 1% when you don't get it right and they're the ones that tend to cause all the problems. Yeah, what really struck me was the amount of time that Tony spent on just building relationships with people. Giving people so much focus and attention takes a tremendous amount of time and a tremendous amount of, of silence on your part. And all the time you're listening, there are plenty of other jobs you should be doing. That's true. But I think Tony would say, and I'd agree with this, that this is my job. Bringing people together, driving things forward 
it's not about sitting at your desk and designing some grand strategy. It's about working with people to make things happen in the organization. Yeah, and he understands, though I don't think he'd say it quite like this, that your power as a leader comes from listening. And I think he'd be right because I believe that when you take the time to listen, to really listen, it provides you with information that you can use to bolster your own argument and drive forward your objectives. So when people used to say to me, oh, we can't do that because X, Y, Z won't like it, I'd often be able to say, but I've spoken to X, Y, Z and actually they do like it. Yeah, I've seen some leaders of professional firms make some disastrous choices about communicating with their stakeholders. I mean, some get so stung by the challenge and criticism they receive from partners that they start focusing on their staff. And and this might make them popular with the rank and file, but if they're talking rather than listening to them, then they're really just getting their egos stroked. Mm, and then you see leaders who hole up with their professional support staff, their heads of operations, finance and marketing and so on. And they kind of develop a bunker mentality believing they're the only ones who really understand how to run the firm. Yeah, or leaders sometimes focus so much on the external stakeholders, they're always out of the office schmoozing the clients and politicians, and superficially they seem to be doing a great job for the firm. But they're also using clients to hide from having to engage with their partners. And I've definitely seen that, the desire to hide away from criticism. I've felt it myself sometimes. But when you feel too exposed and in the public eye, I think that's understandable. I personally wouldn't recommend any of those strategies because these are the times when you need to rely most on your hinterland, as Tony called it, to give you the boost that you need to get back up again in the next morning and keep on having those difficult conversations. You need to be empathetic enough to really engage with your colleagues, but you also need to be resilient enough to be able to withstand that criticism and not take it all to heart. Yeah, but in my experience, some of the people who put themselves forward for leadership roles in professional organisations are, are neither resilient nor empathetic. They're just thick-skinned and egotistical. Well, of course, you're always going to get people like that. There's always going to be leaders like that. But I think it's also important not to forget that there are plenty of leaders out there in professional service firms who inspire enormous loyalty and respect from their colleagues. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Tony Hall, Lord Hall, for joining us today. That actually brings us to the end of the series. And, and I must say, I, I thought that was a great episode to end on. Yeah, wow. I can't believe it. We've come to the end of the second series. And, uh, and I agree. We've really ended on a high with Tony. I think he made some really fantastic points. Very grateful to him. But, you know, you can always go back. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can always go back and listen to the 11 previous episodes for the whole of the two series that we've recorded together. Laura, it's been a great pleasure. And for me too. Thank you, David. This has been Leading Professional People. <laughs>